So in my defense about all of the messed up slides, um, that it changes each time we do it, like how many uh, times we'll do the chorus or what courses we're doing. And I just never remember to go in and disable the slides to make sure the people in the back know which one we're doing. So I just, you know, here's my formal apology to the people that run the slides because they're just trying to catch, where's he going next? Where's he going next? <laughs> they have to listen for it. It's not just click to the next one. So it's uh, sorry about that. Well, we're, um, next week we're going to start a new series um, about the kingdom of God and, and just emphasizing what the difference or, or really what the kingdom of God is, how it can be a kingdom that's already formed but not yet formed. And we're going to get into all of that next, the next few weeks. But today we're going to do a kind of a standalone message, um, something that I've kind of been thinking about here a little bit lately, something that I actually... I used to struggle. It's just a passage that I read before, and when I was younger, I, I, I would read it, and I'd think, man, that doesn't, this seems uncharacteristic of who Jesus is. It's when he goes and cleanses the temple. And so when I was younger, I didn't understand this passage in its fullness, and, and here recently I've been reading and listening and kind of studying up on it, and, and it just came alive, and it, it makes so pertinent passage for today. And so we're going to be looking at this passage here um, in a little bit. I'm going to open us with a word of prayer, and, and then we'll, we'll dive on into to the scripture this morning. Father God, this morning, as we study your word, let it come alive for us so that, so that what you did 2,000 years ago, cleansing the temple, rebuilding the temple in our hearts, that as we study your word, it, it comes alive to us why you would have so much vigor, so much zeal, zeal for your, your holy place. And so this morning, as, as we study, Lord, I just pray that your, your word comes alive, that your spirit moves, that you're in this place, and that you speak through me. Lord, thank you for your care and your love for us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You know, there is a difference between knowing of someone and deeply knowing someone. You know, we, we can say we know of famous athletes and celebrities and people in history, but none of us can say that we, we truly or deeply know the heart, the mind, the soul of Tom Brady, of Robert De Niro, of Bill Gates. You know, we can say we've, we've watched them play. We can say that we've used... Bill Gates' Xbox, we can say we've, we've seen all of Robert De Niro's movies, we've read all the articles that are written about him, but that's still not truly, deeply knowing the person. There's a difference between knowing of, between knowing there is a person, and knowing the person, deeply knowing the person. I'm not sure if you've heard the name George Younce before, Yance, Yance, I don't know. He, he used to uh, be a bass singer for the Gaithers, so I thought maybe here in, you know, in uh, the Bible Belt, you know, so hear that name. But um, he sang this song in his final performance, his final appearance with the Gaithers. He, he, he sang this song just kind of out of whim called Side by Side. And it goes like this. <clears throat> I'm not going to try to sing it bass because I, I don't have a bass voice, but... I'll do my best. We got married on a Sunday. The party didn't finish till Monday. And the, when the guests had all gone, we were there all alone. 
side by side. Well, we got ready for bed then, and I very nearly dropped dead when her teeth and her hair she placed in a chair side by side. <laughs> one glass eye so tiny, one hearing aid so small, and then she took one leg off and placed on the chair by the wall. <laughs> I stood there broken hearted, for most of my girl had departed. <laughs> so I slept in the chair, there was more of her there. <laughs> side by side. <laughs> oh, I was listening to that this week and I just was busting out laughing. And um, <laughs> the, uh, the people were here working on the sound system and they just heard me dying laughing down the hall. My, uh, my youth pastor, when I was growing up, he sang that one Sunday morning for a message. And I mean, everyone thought it was funny, but I was like crying in the pew. And, and like ever since then, I, that's just my, been my fa one of my favorite illustrations. And it's a, it's a hilarious song. Um, but it also kind of, whether implicitly or explicitly, it makes this point that there's a difference between knowing of someone or even having a, an idea of who someone is and then truly knowing who they are and truly getting to know them and truly seeing all the, the, the aspects of who they are. And this is something that we should be acutely aware of as Christians because, you know, the, the Bible tells us that, that all people's can know of God. They can know his works. They can witness his power. They can see his creation. They can know of God. But only Christians, the Bible tells us, only those who know Jesus can truly know God. But there's a difference between knowing of God, knowing who he is, knowing what he's done, knowing his power, and then knowing God personally and intimately. And, and being able to witness his manifest presence in our lives. And so I, I don't know if this is something you've ever noticed, but every Sunday as we come together, it, it is my prayer that the presence of God would be here, would manifest, that would be in our midst. Because the thing is, when we are the church, when we come together to worship, unless the presence of God is here, we're just a bunch of people gathered together. The presence of God in our lives, the spirit of God binding us together is what makes us the church. And so if the presence of God isn't here, it's debatable on whether or not we're being the church. On whether or not we're truly knowing God. And so it should always be our prayer, whether we're out by ourselves taking quiet time, uh, praying, worshiping, or whether we're gathered here on a Sunday morning... Desire, it should always be our prayer that the presence of God goes before us. And this morning, we're going to be studying what the temple was meant to be. What the temple before Jesus was meant to be. How it was meant to hold the presence of God. How it was meant to be the pinnacle, the, the center of the presence of God among Israel. And how that was corrupted by Jewish people. And then how it was remade by Jesus. And what that means for us as Christians. What it means for us in order to know God, not just know of God, but to know God. And why it's so important that we are cleansing our hearts constantly in this process. So turn with me to Mark chapter 11. 
Mark chapter 11, we're going to be looking at um, the account, Mark's account of, of Jesus cleansing the temple. And this is such a, you know, if you're reading the Gospels, you'll find some texts that one of the Gospels have, or maybe two of them have, or maybe three of them. It, there's not a ton of texts that all four Gospels share. You know, you have the crucifixion, you have the resurrection, and, and there's a couple other things. But cleansing the temple, this is something that all four Gospels have an account of. Because all of the disciples of Jesus, they witnessed Jesus doing this. It set this, this understanding that it was this powerful thing that took place that, that would have governed them as they moved forward in their Christian walk. It was a very important event. And so this is Mark's account of it, starting in verse 15 of chapter 11. And, and, and it comes after they've journeyed into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, um, they come in, and it says, They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple and, to began, and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves." And the chief priests and scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. So Jesus comes into the temple, and I remember reading this for the first time, and I'm thinking, if you read John's account of this, he's not just throwing tables, he's not just kicking people out of the temple, he's taking whips with cords, and he's whipping them like, like they're cattle, get out, get out, get out, just throwing them out of the temple. And I picture this lowly, meek, humble Jesus who, who teaches people, who, who heals the broken, who cares for the sick, who, who is this, uh, who's asking the little children to come to him. And then I see this same Jesus now whipping people out of the temple. And I'm, when I was little, I thought, this is a contradiction. How is this the same Jesus that's doing this? What, what is Jesus doing here? Why is he just kicking people out. What's going on? And it took me some time before I fully realized an understanding of what is happening here. And, and to fully understand it, we also have to know what the temple was meant to be. In order to understand the significance of what Jesus is doing here, whipping people, kicking them out of the temple, overturning tables, we have to know what the table was meant to be. And to know that, we also have to understand a little bit of Western religion versus Eastern religion. So if you think of Western religion, that's that's the, the place of Rome, of Greece, of, of the, the, the Greek gods that we have today, uh, Athena and, and um, Zeus and, and all of these Roman and Greek gods. Just in case you didn't know, Rome took the Greek gods and just slapped new names on them, so they're the same gods. But all of these gods in Western religion were personal deities. You could go to the temple of Zeus and see a statue of him and know him. And, and, and just, you know, be in the presence of Zeus. Or you could do the same with Athena or, or any of these gods. But these gods were not infinite. They were personal but finite. They could be killed. They could be bargained with. They could, be, uh, they could come down and, and, and interact with, with humanity. They were personal gods, but they were finite in Western religion. But in Eastern religion, it's different. You can't know God. God is not a personal being in Eastern religion. God is, is infinite. You know, God is everywhere, 
There, there's some, some Eastern religions that think God is in all things. Some Eastern religions say God is just this thing that we're trying to attain. But he's not personal. You can't know God. He's just some infinite being that's out there somewhere. And so you have the West, which says God is personal but finite. And the East, that says God is infinite but impersonal. You can't relate to him. And then you have smack dab in the middle in the Mediterranean between West and East, you have a religion that says, no, God lets us know him, and he's also infinite. And the temple was where you could know God. So the temple was the pinnacle of importance in the Jewish religion because they were able to say God is infinite. God is, is, is the creator of all. There is one of him. He's omniscient. He's all, he's, he's all powerful. He's timeless. God is infinite. But hey, I can know God. Moses knew God. Moses established a way for us to know God. And it happened in the tabernacle. That happens through the temple. Because guess what? Yeah, God is infinite. But the presence of God resides here in the temple as well. In the most holy place. And so the temple was the epicenter of Jewish faith because they were able, they, they would say that God is infinite, but through the temple, through our place of God's dwelling, we can know personally this infinite God. But here's the thing. If God is infinite, then he's infinitely good. He's infinitely perfect. And so, you know, it takes a little bit to actually get to know God. You can't just come into the presence of an infinite God and expect that he's, without any sort of cleansing, expect that he's just going to welcome you in. Now think of it this way. If you had someone that owed you a lot of money and you, and you, you gave them all that money and then they just walked up to you one day after months of not paying you back, after years of not paying you back and just try to strike up a conversation with you, I mean, you think it's going to be just easy peasy for you to sit there and talk to this person that owes you all this money? I mean, you're going to be one to nudge them or, or shout at them, give me my money. I gave you this money no, expecting you to pay me back. And so there, there's, this, there's this relationship, that this, this thing that we need to bring to God, or at least in the temple period, in order to be with God. We owe him our cleanliness. We can't just come to God and expect to have this personal conversation with God because when we come to God, we're messed up. We're broken. We're sinful. And so in order to come to know the personal God as he's dwelling in his temple, you had to bring sacrifices of atonement. And that big word atonement just means something that takes the place of your sin. You had to bring sacrifices, and that sacrifice would cleanse you from the sin that you have. It would wipe away the debt that you owe. And so when you come then before God, you don't owe him the money. You don't owe him this debt. It's wiped. And now you can have this personal conversation with God. And that's the point of the sacrifices in the temple. That's the point of everything that goes on. That even though... You had to have to come to God in a proper way. There was a designed way for you to come to God. There was still a way for you to know the infinite God. Western religion says God's not infinite, but hey, you can get to know him. You can get to know all these gods, even though they're imperfect, even though they're not infinite. Eastern religion says, no, God's infinite, but you just can't know him. 
God reveals himself to, Judy, to, to the Hebrews and says, no, you can get to know me. I am infinite. And if you want to get to know me, you have to way. But you can get to know me. And that was the point of the temple. It was the place where they got, where the Hebrew people were able to relate to a perfect God. Where a broken humanity could relate to a perfect God. And where this all took place was in this temple compound. So there's a slide here of the, of the temple. Um, so this is the picture of Herod's temple. This was the temple that was there during the day of, of Jesus. And when we say that there were people in here buying and selling, it would be somewhere in one of these courtyards, whether it was the women's courtyard or just outside of, of the gate to the priest's courtyard. They would be selling stuff within the temple wall. So it wasn't like they were situated outside of the temple. They were inside the temple. And you might think to yourself, well, why is that an issue? If the temple is where a broken humanity was to come to meet a perfect God, and if in order to do this, you had to have sacrifices, you had to have certain things to come to him, why is it an issue that they're buying and selling? Because that's what they were buying and selling. Whenever the text tells us that he began to throw out those buying and selling, what they were buying and selling were, were doves, were sac animal sacrifices, were lambs, and there were money changers, people that would come and exchange money. And the preface that, what, what this means is people from, from the Jewish faith lived all over the world. And so you have people from Egypt, from Cyrene, from, from, from different parts of the globe, all coming at Passover to the temple to know God, to present a sacrifice to God, to commune with God. And so you have different currencies. So not only are they selling the sacrifices there, but they're also exchanging currencies because... In this time period, you couldn't have bought something with Canadian money. You, know, you, had to have, you had to make sure you had the Roman coin to buy things in this Roman province. And so you would have money changers there, and then you would use your money to buy your animal sacrifice. Because who wanted to lug a, a, a lamb with them thousands of miles in order to present it to God? Because by the time it got there, it was going to be blemished. So all of this to say... It makes sense for there to be money changers. It makes sense for there to be animals there for there to be chaos there because that was part of what it means coming to god if you look at the book of hebrews when, when the book of hebrews talks about about jesus as the perfect sacrifice he also it also says the law has only a shadow of the good things to come not the reality of those things they can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year otherwise wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away this. And so what you're seeing here in Hebrews is they're, they're talking about how Jesus is the perfect sacrifice that takes away all sins for all time. But before Jesus, you had to bring continually sacrifices to make atonement. And if you're continually bringing sacrifices from thousands of miles away, you're going to want to just get there and buy the sacrifice. You're not going to want to lug it this way all the time. And you're going to need to have money changers to exchange the rates that you're coming with from such a distance, distant country. And so even though the temple was where a broken humanity could relate to a perfect God, that relation happened through these sacrifices, through this system that had evolved, through the busyness that had become a part of knowing God. And that busyness is what Jesus had an issue with. 
Jesus wasn't throwing people out because he was saying, the law was wrong. This isn't how you come to know God. The law was wrong. You don't actually need sacrifices. Just sit where you are and pray. He's not saying that the law is wrong. He's saying that the way they are interacting with God in his temple was wrong. That this place of communion, of getting to know God, had become a den of thieves rather than a place of prayer. It wasn't the fact that they were selling these sacrifices that was wrong. It wasn't even the money changers that was wrong. It was the fact that they were doing that, and and that was all they were concerned with, as opposed to actually spending time in the presence of God. And so when Jesus looks at them in, in Mark in, in Mark 17, and he says, It's not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. He's referencing a quote from, from the book of Jeremiah. In, in Jeremiah 7, God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to the Israelites as they're growing in idolatry, as they're growing and worshiping all these other things, as, as they're kind of pulling away from what it means to worship God in this temple. And God says to Jeremiah, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says, correct your ways and your actions, and I will allow you to live in this place. Do not trust in deceitful words, chanting, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Instead, if you really correct your ways and your actions, if you act justly toward one another, if you no longer oppress the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow, no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods bringing harm on yourselves. I will allow you to live in this place, the land I gave your ancestors long ago and forever. But look, if you keep trusting in deceitful words that cannot help, do you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods that you have not known? Then do you come and stand before me in this house that bears my name and say, we are rescued so we can continue doing all these detestable acts? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. And so when Jesus is referencing this den of thieves, he's listening what happened here in Jeremiah. And what was going on in Jeremiah is they were so concerned with everything else happening every other day of their life that they just treated the temple as this checklist for them. They would come into the temple and God mocks them and says, you, you come in, you, you trust these deceitful words, and you say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, meaning you're coming in and you're saying these things that are hollow. You're coming in and you're offering sacrifices and they're hollow. You're coming in and you're doing all of these things trying to elicit my presence, and it's hollow. Because what are you actually doing outside of the temple? You're worshiping Baal. You're shedding false blood. You're lying. You're stealing. You're doing everything that... I ask you not to do, and then you come to me, and you act like everything's fine and dandy, but it's not. Because you're fake, is what he's saying. And so that sort of mindset has now seeped its way into the first century Judaism as well. That they were so concerned with doing something They were so concerned with checking off a box on their checklist that the place where the infinite God related to a broken humanity had just become a place of busyness and chaos. 
and all the religious red tape and the busy life that was happening in the lives of these Hebrews imposed itself upon the temple's purpose. And rather than the temple being a place where broken humanity could relate to the infinite God, it became a place where broken humanity just did a bunch of stuff. And thought, well, that's good enough. Now let me go back to my day. Now let me go back to what I want to do. Now let me go back to my busy life. Let me go back and do something else. Their faith was about doing things, not about being in the presence of God. And, you know, uh, when, when I was in, in college, we, we used to, well, in, in high school as well, you know, playing sports, you, you're required to do workouts and everything. You're, you're required to lift and do all these different things. And it was a year ago, I found out that all of my years of college, all of my um, time spending lifting, I was squatting the wrong way. Well, squat is a certain lift. You put the bar on your back, and you come down and come back up. And apparently for like eight years of playing baseball in high school and college and doing all these workouts, I had been squatting incorrectly. And so all of this benefit that I thought I was getting from doing this exercise wasn't getting me anywhere. Because when I actually had to start doing it correctly, I couldn't do it. I, I didn't have the muscle built up because I hadn't been doing it the right way. In this culture here, they were so concerned about just doing something, they didn't really care if they were doing it correctly. And they didn't even realize that what they were doing wasn't bringing them into the presence of God. They just wanted to check it off their list. And what does Jesus say further about all of this? If we look at John's account of everything that happens we can understand a little bit more of why Jesus is turning all of these tables over, why he's whipping people with cords. What, what, you know, it, it's not just that he's trying to show them that they're incorrect in how they're worshiping, but he's also trying to show them, I'm bringing a different way for you to come into the presence of God. Look at what he says. <clears throat> so the Jews reply to him after he kicks them all out and whips them. He says, what sign will you show us for doing all of these things? And Jesus answered, I will destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. So what Jesus is emphasizing here is he is flipping tables, Rearranging everything that's been set up in the temple of God. He, he's, he's throwing stuff out. He's kicking people out. And what does he say in Mark about doing all of this? He says, my house be called the house of prayer for all nations. Which means that as he's doing all this, as he's throwing tables, as he's whipping people, as he's kicking people out, he's equating himself to God. Because this is the house of God. And he doesn't say, God's house will be a tent of prayer. He doesn't even say, my father's house. He says, my house will be a tent of prayer, will be a house of prayer. And I'm kicking you all out because you're not using my house the way you're supposed to be using my house. So be gone. And he comes into the temple and he rearranges the furniture because this is his house. 
And he says, I'm going to do what I want my house to be done for. And you guys are messing it up. You guys are, are destroying it all. So you know what? I'm not even going to just rearrange the furniture. I'm going to completely destroy it and build it back from the ground up. And then you all here who have been doing all these things, thinking that all of these different activities and this busyness, that that brings you in the presence of God, and you don't even realize you're not coming into the presence of God, you're going to be lost. Because the only way you're going to be able to come into God's presence is in the temple that I rebuild in three days. And after his resurrection, his disciples realized that the new temple wasn't built by human hands, but it was a dwelling that's now in the hearts of all believers. That it's not a building, but it's a dwelling that Jesus makes in our hearts because of his resurrection. And this is where this all comes to a head. Because Jesus walked in in first century Israel, and he tells them this people whose identity was solely built on the temple, whose identity was solely built on being able to worship the infinite God in a personal way, he tells them, you're doing it wrong. You're doing all these things thinking that you're going to be in the presence of God, and you're so concerned with doing these things that you don't even realize you're not in his presence. I'm rearranging the furniture. I'm destroying it, and I'm swapping it out. And now... If you want to know God, if you want to be in his presence, that temple isn't a building that you come to in a certain particular way. That temple is with you. And the spirit of God is with you. If you want to be in his presence, you just need to be still and listen and seek him. So how does this apply to us as 21st century Christians? You know, we don't have a temple. And this building here, this isn't a temple. This is just a roof over our heads and air conditioning to make us not sweat the entire time, even though I'm sweating this whole time while I'm up here. You know, this is just a comfort thing. The presence of God doesn't dwell in this building in the same way that the presence of God dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the temple. The presence of God dwells in every single one of our hearts who believe in Jesus. And when we come together... The presence of God should be felt like a thick fog. And so what does that mean for us as Christians versus when we understand what Jesus is saying to first century Jews about the temple, how do we now apply that to 21st century Christians where the temple is in our hearts? Well, we've got to ask ourselves this question in what way is Jesus trying to rearrange our furniture? In what way is, God, is Jesus working in our hearts saying, I'm, I'm here, I'm the God. This place that I'm living in right now inside your heart, this is my house. Is he trying to rearrange it? Is he trying to flip tables? Is he trying to push you a certain way? The truth of the matter is Jesus, in some way or another, is knocking on all of our hearts. Whether we believe it or not, he is trying to say to us, this is my house. Are you going to let me in? Are you going to give me control? 
or not. And if you're not a believer, he hasn't even made your, your soul his house yet. He's just trying to get in. And if you are a believer, sometimes what we'll end up finding out is we give him the boot, even though it is his house. And he's trying to get back in. So how are we to know whether or not he is knocking on our heart? Here's some self-diagnosis questions. Does your life feel out of balance? Do you feel like you're always on one end of the spectrum or another? You just can't ever find that sense of peace? Well, maybe he's trying to knock on your heart. Do you feel joyless in life? Even when you have plenty, even when you have family, even when you have things around you that, sh- that you know, they might not bring you joy, but there's no reason for you to feel joyless. Well, maybe Jesus is knocking and saying, hey, the reason you don't feel true spiritual joy is because I'm not, right, I'm not in there right now. You kicked me out. Likewise, you feel empty. Do you feel like, well, there's got to be something to bring me fulfillment. There's got to be something to give me... to." to to make me feel whole, to make me feel accomplished, to make me feel like once I get it, I'll be better. Do you feel empty? Because the only thing that can fill that emptiness is letting him back in. Are you tired? Not just physically, because as we get older, we all get tired physically, but emotionally and spiritually where it's just no matter how much sleep you get, no matter how many naps you take, you can't get recharged. Because maybe that's a way of Jesus saying, you've got to let me in if you want that energy. Or do you feel lost? As if I'm just wandering aimlessly. No end in sight, no path going anywhere, and I just don't know where I'm supposed to go. Well, maybe that's Jesus saying, you've got to let me be your captain. You've got to let me in to direct your paths. And if any of these situations describe you at this time, then it's likely that either you haven't let Jesus in at all and he's knocking on your heart to let him come in and completely build his temple within you, or maybe he has built his temple and you've become busy with life or concerned with something else and without even realizing it, you've kicked him out of his own house. And he's coming to you and saying, hey, let me back in. This is my house. Let me back in. Either way, if either of those describe you, there's two things we need to do. First, we devote his temple to prayer again. Meaning, we we, we might live busy lives. In 21st century America, we live busy lives. It is true. But if you let the busyness of your life deter you from spending time in prayer, your house or the house of God, the temple, your soul is no longer being a house of prayer. It's being a house of busyness. And so no matter how crazy life gets, you have to find time to devote yourself to prayer, to worship, to focusing your hearts and desires on simply drawing near to him rather than the busyness of life. And secondly, like he says in John, as he will rebuild the temple in three days, we have to find comfort in his resurrection. Which means we have to remind ourselves that this life as a whole is just a shadow of the reality of eternity. There's really no sense in devoting our time and our busyness and our attention and our desires to this world 
full stop because this world is temporary. And the only way we remind ourselves that this world is temporary is by remembering that he resurrected, that he promises to resurrect us, and that through his resurrection, his house is now within us. And so I, you know, I think that if not every single one of us, then very many of us in some way or another feel Jesus knocking on our hearts. And he's trying to say, let me in so I can rearrange things because you're out of whack. You, you got the toilet in the living room. Let me come and rearrange things. Let me come and take ownership of my house again. Let it be a house of prayer. Let it be a house that points you to the eternal reality that I'm bringing you. Not solely about living a busy life. And this morning as we close in a song of worship, if, if you want to make the decision, if he's knocking on your door for the first time and saying, let me in just so I can build a house in the first place, there's no time like now to come and let him do that. Or maybe you just, you know he's knocking on your door wanting to come in so that you can let him rearrange things even though he's already built his house before. Either way, I urge you to come talk, to come forward, to say this, I'm ready to let him in. I'm ready to open the door. It's time to let his house be his once more. I'm going to close us in a word of prayer and we're going to end in a song of worship. And if you want to come forward this time to let him in, I urge you to do so. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, you, Jesus, you overturned tables in your temple because it was your temple and we had made it about all sorts of other things instead of just letting it be a place to come to know you. And now, God, through, through Jesus, you've built your home in us. But so often, we allow that home to be weighed down by the things that we want in this world, by the busyness of this world, by everything other than simply coming to know you. You've given us the greatest gift that we could ever have, this opportunity to know you while living on this earth. And don't let the busyness of life infect itself in your house. I pray, God, that you're knocking on the doors of every single one of our hearts. That you're pleading with us to let you in. To rearrange things. To reorient ourselves on focusing you as the lives. So this morning, God, I, as we close this time in worship, I pray that you're moving in our midst. That you're knocking on our doors. your house within our hearts will be a place of prayer and devotion to you once more. Thank you for pouring out your spirit through your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.